The sermon text is John 14, 15 to 31. You can find it on page 586 in your paper Bibles. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscarot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you will have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, because it takes place, so that when it does take place, you, will, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And we need to just kind of preface this uh, with, with what we're not talking about here. Because I think one of the common, most common misunderstandings about Christianity is that the, the focus of Christianity is being a good person. That's a misunderstanding that people have outside of the church, and it's a misunderstanding that people have inside of the church. And it is probably one of the most destructive ways that we twist the message of Scripture. Um, you commonly come across it, right? You, you find people who think that, that the main thing the church wants out of them, the main thing that Christians want out of them is that they would follow the rules, that they would live by this moral teaching, by the same ethic that they live by. But if you look through history, you find pretty quickly that whenever the church has led with morality, it has brought nothing but destruction. You can, from the Crusades to the religious right in the 1980s, when, when, people, when Christians lead with moral teaching, it leads to destruction. You can see it today by the way that people react to the church, right? Our society has been conditioned to expect judgment. They have been conditioned to expect they will be shamed for their life choices by Christians. 
And many of those same sinners, right, that Jesus hung out with all the time, would, would, they want nothing to do with the church because we've been leading with morality. And that's led the world to despise it. Also, inside of the church, leading with morality has led to a church that's often filled with self-righteous people or guilt-ridden people who are, are trying to hide the bad things that they've done. And I just want to say, as we get started, this passage has nothing to do with that. This passage has nothing to do with the morality-first kind of thinking that ruins the church. But it does deal with obedience. This does speak about keeping the commands of God. And the approach may be the opposite of what you've heard. It might be the opposite of what you expect. So uh, this is an approach that rather than starting from the outside and playing whack-a-mole with the bad things in your life, it's an approach that starts from the inside, that, that deals with the heart. It's an entirely different approach to personal holiness. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on where morality comes from, on where our goodness comes from. And, and it, it, there's three points I want to look at, that, that goodness comes from a new position, a new perspective, and a new power. A new position, a new perspective, and a new power, okay? All right, so let's, let's be reminded of what we're looking at this morning. We're in John 14, and this is the passage where Jesus has just told his disciples that he's not going to be with them much longer. He has shocked them all and said, I'm about to leave you pretty soon, and they're distraught. They're in despair, and so he's trying to comfort them. The tone of this passage is comfort. And the first thing he says is what we preached on last week. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you there. And then the second thing he tells them is, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you are a Christian here in this room, do those words comfort you? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. I'm going to imagine they probably don't. I think a lot of us, as we read this, this verse, we read it in the opposite way that Jesus intended it. We read it backwards. Look at it again. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Verse 15. Jesus is not saying that obedience is the sum total of Christianity there. What he is saying is, all obedience, all true obedience begins with love. It comes from love of the Father, love of the Son. He says, if you love me, the grounds for obedience comes out of this relationship of love with God. And then he goes on, verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He says this relationship, this relationship that causes obedience is not something that we produce. It's not a relationship that we start, but he starts it. He, he's the one who initiates it, and then he guarantees this relationship forever, right? That's what he says. He will be with you forever. And so that's what he's getting at. That's his point when he gets to verse 18, when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. That's the logical conclusion of the words, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. 
And all over Scripture we see this. This is, this is not the only verse where this comes up. All over Scripture we see that the Holy Spirit brings us into this new kind of relationship with God. Romans chapter 18, when he talks about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he says this is what the, the Holy Spirit will do. Uh, Romans 8 verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He says the, what the Spirit does is he brings us into this relationship with God where we become God's children where we are legally guaranteed the right to all the things that belong to him, where we legally become his heirs. In other words, in Christ, we have a new identity. In Christ, we are God's children. In Christ, we have a new position, a new position in the universe. We are God's children. Or as some people talk about this, it's called sonship. Um, the reason why they use the word son instead of daughtership is because back here in, in Greek times, being a son meant you were the one that inherited the, the, the property. Uh, but when we hear it now, you could think of it as, as childrenship or something like that. But sonship is supposed to be the starting point for the Christian life. It should be the thing that lies behind any of our actions, any of our behaviors. We see that on, in John chapter 1 the very beginning of this gospel that we're studying, he says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. That means everyone who believes in Jesus, all of their actions come out of this relationship, that we are children of God, that God is our Father. Do you get that? But the problem is, most Christians don't live this way. Most of us, we don't get it. Most of us, we miss the point of these verses. And I would suggest, as this text does, that one of the most, uh, one of the reasons for pervasive sin in our life is that we are holding on to an orphan mentality. One of the reasons we are, are struggling is because we live like we're orphans. We can't grasp this new identity that's been given us as sons and daughters of God. We don't believe that we can trust the love of our Heavenly Father. Uh, a few years ago, I went to an adoption seminar where there was a panel of parents talking about all different kinds of adoption that they'd participated in and their experiences with it. And one of the women on this panel uh, had adopted three children uh, who had been in the foster system. And when she adopted them, they were a little bit older. So I think between like the ages of three and seven years old. Um, but she adopted these three kids and, and raised these three kids, loved them well. I mean, this was just a very godly woman. Uh, and they lived in a, a wonderful household with two great parents. Um, but she described this story of cleaning the house one day after having been parenting these children for over 10 years. And she went up into their room, and in one of the rooms was a drawer. And when she pulled out the drawer, she found inside of it was all this food. Canned goods, 
packaged food, things that they had been hoarding away. Because even after all this time, they still were afraid that, that they may not get fed. They still were afraid that there might come a situation where they were going to need to get ready and go. And so they'd been stockpiling all this food. And she said that there was a really painful thing to, to realize that after all these years, they still couldn't believe her love. But as she reflected on it, her, her, her sharing, she said, you know, we're all like that. Every single one of us with God, we all have that same attachment disorder. We don't realize that, that God's love will be there for us. We live like orphans. So what about you? Are you a son? Are you a daughter? Or are you an orphan? Are you confident in God's love for you? Or are you worried that he's not really going to forgive you this time? Are you freed to accept the forgiveness that's offered to you through Christ? Or are you consumed by guilt? Are you filled with a sense of failure? Do you find your identity in that phrase, that you are a child of God? Does that define who you are? Is that at the center of your purpose here on earth? Or are you looking somewhere else? Are you constantly worried about what other people think? Are you anxious to build a name for yourself? Are you motivated by love? Or are you motivated by duty and obligation? Many of us, if we're being honest, I think we have to say we're in that latter category, that we live like orphans. But Jesus says to you, to us, he says, we are not orphans. We have a new position. We're God's children. So what is it going to take for us to believe? Well, the second thing we see in this passage is that obedience comes not just from a new position, but also from a new perspective. The Holy Spirit doesn't simply give us this new arrangement, but he also gives us a new perception to see it. So I just mentioned a second ago, Jesus, he told his disciples he's about to leave. He told them he's going away. But then he says, but I'm sending another helper, another helper to be with you forever. And then he says in verse 20, and in that day you will know that I'm in my Father and that you in me and I in you. He says, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to give you another helper, and in that day, you're going to know more. You're going to understand. But that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why, why does Jesus have to send a different helper? Why, why, wasn't he, why wouldn't he just stick around and help us out? I, I hear this a lot from people when I'm talking about what the Bible teaches. A lot of times people will say, you know, if I could have just been there with Jesus, it would be a lot easier to believe. If I could have just seen what he did, if I could have heard his teachings firsthand, certainly I would have, it would be much easier for me to, to believe the stuff you're saying. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and we were 
talking about faith, and he's a pretty devout non-believer, and, and I just challenged him and said, what would it take? Being honest, what would it take for you to believe this? And he said, the only way I would ever believe is if I saw it firsthand. But if you look at this passage, clearly that's not, that won't work. Not even that is enough. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and if you go to verse 8, uh, it was from last week's passage, but maybe you remember it. It says, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The disciples have been with Jesus. They have seen Jesus. They've been with him every minute. They have seen all the miracles, and still, they don't get it. <laughs> still, at this point, they don't believe. Jesus says, not even that's enough. What you need is another helper. What you need is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, he keeps teaching about this. Um, in chapter 16 is, is another big passage where he talks about what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, it's to your advantage. This is actually better. I know you're scared to hear I'm leaving, but this is going to be better for you. So how is it better? How is the Holy Spirit better than the presence of Jesus? How is the Holy Spirit better? How is Jesus going away better? Well, here's what Jesus says right after that verse. He says, I will send him to you, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Isn't that interesting? The chief benefit of Jesus leaving, the chief benefit of the Holy Spirit coming, is that we would be convicted of sin. Jesus tells us that apart from God's power in us, apart from the Spirit at work, we cannot see our need for a Savior. In other parts of Scripture, it says that we're dead in our trespasses or that we are spiritually blind. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that we uh, are incapable of realizing we might have some flaws. Anybody can, can come to that conclusion, right? Anybody can say, oh, well, I know I'm not perfect. You know, I, I know I have a standard, and I don't always live up to that standard. But what he's saying here is that apart from the Spirit, we will never come to the conclusion that we are, we are desperately, uh, our lives are desperately out of shape, that we fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. Right? That's not what we do. What happens when we realize we, we have some shortcomings? Well, we, we make new plans. We make new resolutions. We make plans to be better. Or, if we don't want, feel like doing that, we just compare ourselves to other people who are worse. <laughs> right? Well, I'm not so bad. At least I'm not like them. We build up like a much, a much smaller version of righteousness. But Jesus says, only the Spirit can convict us of sin in a way that brings life. Only the Spirit can show us our need. 
And if you're a Christian in this room, we need to pay attention to that. As we think about reaching this community for, the, for Jesus, as we think about sharing the gospel, we need to realize that the power to convert people doesn't, it's not ultimately in your hands. You need to persevere in evangelism. I, I, I don't want to downplay that. I really, I, would, I want us to be a people who share the truth. I, want us, I, w- I would challenge you, you know, learn the answers to some of your friends' hard questions so you can talk to them, have a discussion with them. But the biggest thing we need to do, what this passage tells us is the biggest thing we need to do is pray. If you really want to see people come to faith, what you need to do is ask the Lord to work. And I'm just going to use this opportunity to plug our prayer meeting. <laughs> we have a, a prayer meeting every Tuesday at noon. It's in our office, and it is on Google Hangouts, and it is online. You can just stream it and watch it. There is, you, can, you can put it on mute while you're doing something else, and you can still uh, be a part. We've tried to make it easy, but we need to pray. We need to be a praying people because it's God's spirit that moves. That's the first thing. The second thing that that his spirit does for us is that it reveals the truth of God's word. It reveals our sin, but it also reveals the truth of God's word. You see verse 26 in our passage. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The other role of the helper is that he's going to teach us all things, that he's going to help us to understand the words of God. He's going to help us to comprehend all the things that Christ has said. And we need him for that. A man was telling me the story of his conversion. And he, was, uh, he had grown up in a church. Uh, he'd been a regular attender of this church his whole life. Not only that, but he had actually gone to seminary. And then it wasn't until after seminary, when he was in the military that he finally came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And as he was talking about this experience with one of his friends, he was saying, you know, I just can't believe that all my life I went to a church and I never heard the gospel once. And his friend was nodding and saying, you know, yeah, you're right. He's like, but what I really can't believe is that in seminary that Martin Luther didn't know anything about the gospel. (laughs) And the guy said, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I read Martin Luther and he didn't know anything about the gospel. He's like, well, when was the last time you read it? I haven't read it since I came to faith. Go back. Go back and read it again. And so he went back and he picked up these works of Martin Luther and he just said every single page was dripping with the truth. But he couldn't see it because before he had been blind. Have you ever had that experience before? That apart from the Spirit, you can't see the truth. 1 Corinthians, it says, the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. The words of Scripture, the words of Jesus, they are lifeless without the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can make it uh, make sense to us. And it's funny, as you read this passage, you kind of get the sense that it's happening to John as he's writing the story. In verse 19, Jesus says, Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. I imagine that when Jesus said those words, 
in a little while the world will see me no more. I'm sure that those disciples had no idea what he was talking about. But now, going back in the power of the Spirit, he realizes Jesus was telling them that he was going to go die for the sins of the world. That he was going to bear the penalty for all of our sins on the cross, and he was going to die. That's what he means when I'm going away. He's going to die and then return. He was going to conquer sin through his death and resurrection. But in that moment, when they heard it the first time, they were lost. Because only the Spirit can reveal the truth. Only the Spirit can reveal the truth that we are sinners who need a Savior. And that we have one in Christ. So the Spirit gives us a new position. We're not orphans, but sons and daughters. And at the same time, as the same time as he's doing that, he gives us a new perspective. He opens our eyes so that we can see our sin so that we can see the truth of his word, so that we can believe the gospel message. And the final thing is that he gives us a new power. He gives us the new position, the new perspective, but finally he gives us a new power. And I want us to hone in on this because this is the really important part. Romans chapter 8, it puts it this way. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is more than just to be a teacher. His position is bigger than simply revealing knowledge about God, but what Paul tells us is he is the power of God at work in our lives. He goes on to say that he is the guarantee. His presence in our life is the guarantee of our inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. So, so follow me here. He's saying that the Spirit's presence in our life is our guarantee of His power in our life. That if you have ever been convicted of your sin, if you, by the Spirit's power, have been convinced of the truth of Jesus, then that means God himself dwells in you. It means God is at work in you. It means no matter how miserable you might feel this morning, no matter how big of a failure you feel like today. Look, I've been in the church long enough <laughs> to know that there are some people here this morning who feel defeated by their sin. There are some people in this room that are, are struggling, and they're, they're struggling hard. That there's something going on, and it has been going on for so long that you just, you're, you're ready to give up. Maybe you're at that point. Maybe, maybe you're, you're not even sure that you believe anymore because it's, it's been so hard. Maybe you're at that point where you think, I don't, I'm never going to be free of this. This is just who I am now. 
I'm stuck. But listen, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And if the Spirit of God can raise Jesus from the dead, He can certainly deal with whatever's going on in your life. But not only that, it says that He lives as our helper, as our advocate, as our counselor to continue to speak to us the truth, to open our eyes to to see the truth of Scripture, to hear the words of freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not surprised that you are still struggling. You might feel like a failure. You might feel like a mess. And you know what? You probably are a mess. (laughs) You might be in that place where you think, I can't believe I've done this again. But you know what? God is not surprised one bit. He knew that's who you were going to be long before you knew who he was. Because he doesn't save his people due to their goodness. He doesn't save his people due to their future potential. No, he he saves us because he loves us. In other words, it's, it's what we've been saying this whole time. You are not an orphan. You are a child loved by God. You have a home where you belong. You're not going to be kicked out. You belong to him. So let me ask, how does that make you feel to be reminded of that truth? How does it make you feel to to be reminded of the completeness of his grace? Do you want more of him or less of him? When you see that your inheritance is guaranteed, that there's nothing that can be done to take it away, do you want to run away from him? Or do you want to run to him? If all this good news is true, how do you want to respond? Well, I hope what you're thinking is with love, of course. I want to respond with love. Well, then Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And he says it again. He says it in verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then he says it again in verse 23, in case we haven't gotten the point. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In other words, the call to obedience is a call to love. It's a call to love God more than you love the things of the world. The same writer, when he writes a letter to the churches, he says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone is in love with the world, then the love of the Father isn't in him. Obedience, holiness, whatever you want to call it, it's it's not first about our actions. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts that we're supposed to keep. It's about what we really love. It's about what's going on at a heart level. But I want to make this important distinction, okay? Because when we talk about love, When the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about it the same way you're thinking about it. Love in the Bible isn't some, you know, mushy, gushy feeling. (laughs) Think about it. 
there's lots of places in Scripture that talk about love. Uh, maybe you think of that Ephesians passage where it says, Husbands, love your wives. And what does is, what is Paul say? Do you remember this? What does he say? Write him letters? No, right? Does he say, buy him flowers and think nice thoughts? No, what does he say? He says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her. What about 1 Corinthians? where it talks about love. You know this one, love is patient, love is kind. You, you hear this read in, at weddings all the time. How does it describe love? Does it say love is fuzzy? Love makes you feel butterflies? <laughs> love makes you feel happy all the time? No, it says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I think that understanding of love gets at the heart of the matter. It helps us to understand how we are supposed to love God. The gospel is great news, folks. It's amazingly good news, but the battle for your hearts is real. Every day we are surrounded by temptation of, of, of a thousand different kinds. And you know, sometimes the fight, it's really hard. Sometimes resisting temptation is really hard. Sometimes it feels like you're dying to resist. Now occasionally, occasionally loving God maybe will feel like butterflies. Occasionally it might give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. But most of the time, when you are loving God, it's going to feel like laying down your life. It's going to feel like enduring all things and believing all things. And there's only one way for us to do that. There's only one hope for us if that's what loving God really means. There's only one way that we're ever going to be able to follow this command. We need to be clear on this. Jesus' call is not just grit your teeth and clench your abs and just obey. You know, I know it's going to be hard, but do it. Look deep inside, find the strength, and just do it. Obey. No, he says, you can't do this on your own. <laughs> you can't do this alone. It's not going to be possible to do this in your own strength. But here's the good news. You're not alone. There's a helper. This helper has come. He has come into your life. And he has come to convict you of your sin and to show you the truth that there is a better way. He's come to show you that you have a Savior. And he's the one who really endured all things for our sake. He's the one who literally gave his life so that we would have life. And now, by his Spirit dwelling in you, he gives you the power to repent. He gives you the power to believe. He gives you the power to turn to him, to see his face, and to be transformed. To be changed into his likeness. Bradley Barnes is the pastor at our Newton congregation. And he put it this way as we were talking about the passage this week. He said that we as human beings, we have been created for a purpose. We were created to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. But apart from God's Spirit, we can't do it. We're powerless to do that. He said we're like a car with no gas. 
We're this machine that has been created for a certain purpose, but we can't do it without the power to fuel it. The Holy Spirit is that power. The Holy Spirit is the power we need to glorify God with our lives. And so this is my final challenge this morning. A question I want to ask all of you. Are you willing to pray for that kind of power in your life? If you're here in this room and and you've never trusted Jesus to begin with, if you've never repented of your sin, and in this moment, God's opening your eyes to see that, yes, you are a sinner and that you need a Savior, are you willing to surrender right now? Are you willing to pray that God might give you the power to transform? And what about you, the Christians here in this room? Are you willing to pray for that power? Are you willing to pray that God might purge sin from your life? That he might lead you to a life that actually glorifies him? Are you willing to pray that you might be transformed more and more into his image? Are you ready to love him? Or is there something that you love more? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel, that you will not leave us as orphans, that it is not up to us to make ourselves holy. But Lord, the truth is we are still full of sin, and we time and time again choose death over life. We choose the things that kill us and lead us to despair instead of choosing you. Father, I thank you for the promise that that you who began a good work in us, you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And I pray that for the Christians here who are on that road, Lord, we would have confidence that you haven't left us behind. And Lord, I pray that you would move in us to follow you in faith. Lord, I pray for those here who are seeking truth, God. I pray that you would do the thing that I can't do, that you would show truth to them. The power of persuasion is only so strong. But Lord, you're the one who changes hearts. I pray, God, that you would work. In Jesus' name, amen.